All right. Hello and welcome to the Doubt Society podcast, episode two. Uh, I'm your host, Riley Morgan, and today I am very thrilled to have on a very special guest. Uh, some say he once killed a thousand Philistines using merely the jawbone of a donkey. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, that's not a myth. Ladies that's, and gentlemen, yeah, Derek yeah. Lambert. <laughs> well, thank you, my friend. I appreciate the wonderful intro, and it was actually 3,000. 3,000. Uh, but, you know, I'm not going to argue with you. 3, it's 000. okay. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that was just a little a little shout-out to all your, your great intros that you do for all the guests, thank all the uh, great you. biblical references and everything. So, um, yeah, hey, I am a – first and foremost, I just want to say I'm a huge fan of the show. Uh I can't imagine how many hours I've logged watching it. Um, so big fan. The work you're doing is awesome. So uh, for those who don't know, who don't maybe don't know the name Derek Lambert or don't know what Myth Vision is, um, why don't we talk a little bit about what that is and why you started it? Yeah, Myth Vision, <clears throat> I must admit up front when I first started, I was into kind of alternative interpretations, right? Because as a Christian – when you see a problem, cognitive dissonance sets in. So you find a way to rationalize that position. But I also have always been somewhat, I mean, every person who has a bias as a believer wants to protect their beliefs. But I also am a seeker of truth. Like I really have said as a child, I really want to know what the answer is. I always really wanted to know the answer. And sometimes cognitive dissonance would prevent me or I'd hit a wall or whatever. But I also am a recovering drug addict, and I have to admit that those failures in my life allowed me to have a crippling blow to my pride, which is part of I have all the answers. And as a fundamentalist Christian throughout the years, I always had all the answers. You know, you ask a, a devout Muslim, Muhammad is the final prophet, and Allah is, and you know, the list goes on, and they're convinced. And if you really took a scalpel, there's really nothing there to be convinced of other than here's the circle reasoning that our family taught us. So Myth Vision originally started out saying, you know, the Bible can be interpreted in different ways. It's not only one way that it could be understood. So it was my kind of way of fixing the problems and saying, okay, maybe we can get out of some of these blows that these skeptics like – um, you know, Robert Price or Bart Ehrman are trying to poke at by explaining it in astrotheology, or that's just an allegory. But once you start doing that and you see that there is allegory there, you start to go, hold on, then why are people believing it like this? And what is the point of their interpretation like this? So as I was kind of defending the Bible in a way initially, I started finding out problems. And there were problems I couldn't fix. Allegory wasn't going to do it. And you started to find out, okay, nobody's talking about this or it's not as public as it should be. I always felt like there's not enough of this stuff. So I need to somehow find a way to create a channel where these ideas get discussed. And MythVision became the focus, the I, you know, I was at the I symbol. People think I right. work for the Illuminati. I'm not even kidding you. There's like really... There's, I'm like, I wish I was getting paid by the Illuminati. Like, somebody tell me to tell them to hook me up. Like, what's up? Um, but it's the eye is just a vision of myth. I want to look at the legends, the myths, the folklore. Where does this come from? 
because it uh, most likely isn't original to your Bible. And that's what yeah. I, that's what myth vision does. That's awesome. Yeah. One of the things, uh, I was just watching, uh, in prep for this, your birth of myth vision video, which is on the myth vision site. And, and on there you say, uh, I believed in the myth and now I know it's a myth. I don't believe in it, but I love studying it. And that really resonates with me. So just, I'll give you just a little bit of my background. So you kind of know where yeah. I'm coming from. I was raised evangelical Christian fundamentalist, young earth, um, at the age of 18 or excuse me, 19, I packed up my bags, went to Bible college to be a pastor. Um, while there went through the whole deconversion, uh, came out a non-believer and stayed, stayed on the whole time while I was there. I actually went through the process relatively quickly. It was probably like 18 months maybe, but I still loved studying it. I loved all, I loved the texts. I loved the background, the history of it. And um, so I stayed. I stayed and got my degree in biblical studies and theology and in comparative religion. And um, so when you said that, I was like, ah, this is a kindred spirit. I feel like so many folks, they, you know, once they don't believe in it, they just throw it on a shelf and it's just, you know, oh, it's just, you know, it's just BS, you know what I mean? Or it's just this, it's just that. And then they, they lose that interest in it. Um, so why is it yeah. you feel like you're still interested in it? Why is it you still take so much joy in digging in and, and you know reading about and studying these things? Myth is not just fiction. In antiquity, I've come to realize that myth is history. You're never going to know the – I don't think there's going to be any documentation. We're ever going to know some of the actual facts, the way we understand them today, like – all right, Bob ate a hamburger on Wednesday, salmonella kicked in, and four days later he was at the hospital. Like, like it's not like we think of facts because who would want to sit and read? And, I mean, there's probably not many people that would be interested in just straight facts if someone's writing a story. Even books that are factual today, people want to be entertaining in the process. So I think that there's a good uh, – there's a clever thing that very wise men in antiquity understood about psychology and to get people interested in them. You would create stories and make it relatable, anthropomorphized, if that makes sense. Of yeah. course, doing that with the sun, moon, and stars, like we have people in science class, unless you're like a really super nerd, right? And I don't mean that derogatorily. I mean that like you're really into this stuff. Um, you're not going to sit there and be like, all right, in Venus, it, it spins in the opposite direction. It goes around the sun in 700 something, you know, like, like all these facts. But if you told a story, a woman, and I'm just really, really giving you a bad example, but let's, let's try and use one. Delilah, who was the trickster who tried to convince Samson, what is your weakness? Samson is the sun, and Delilah is the moon. She gets paid in silver because silver represents the moon, and the seven locks of Samson represent the seven days of the week. When you cut the hair off of the sun entering the winter solstice, it loses its strength, and its eyes are gouged out because it's now darkness. It's winter solstice. So when you start to do that, you know, and of course, I just gave you context to kind of give you like, this is the moon, this is the sun, days are being shut off, you're entering into the winter solstice, astrotheology. But the Bible doesn't say that. You have to decipher it. And if old men in antiquity would tell these stories about a really hot girl from another country, she's a no-no, but she's super attractive. And, you know, like, like people are drawn to that. Yeah. So they knew what they were doing. For me, man, it, it really uh, just 
it's interesting to know what it actually was trying to do when it was being written because you see how it's mishandled. And when I say mishandled, I say reinterpreted. I had a, a kind of a dispute on the phone with a guy named Del Martin. He's a New Testament scholar. And the first thing he tried to do when I said, look, I want to know what Paul was thinking. I want to try and understand why he wrote what he wrote. He tried to correct me. He was like, dude, why would you want to know that? Do you really care why Mozart wrote his first symphony and what he meant by it? Now, he goes, don't you listen to the symphony and how it just matters to you? And I thought to myself, it would be wonderful if this was just art. But the abuse that comes within Christendom and the trauma that is applied, the worldview that I am dung without God, my, my righteousness is filthy rags. Like when that is taught, you really want to start to decipher what is going on here. And he tried to like say, no, 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 read Paul. How do people understand him now? That's what matters. It doesn't matter what Paul meant. And I knew that that wasn't a guy I was interested in interviewing for my channel. I knew right away. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know if that gives you a taste of why I do this and like what I'm interested in, but yeah, I, I, I no, absolutely. I mean, you really tried to get, I feel, at the root of why things were written. You know, you you talk about allegory versus literal, and coming from similar, I think, backgrounds, we were very, you know, at least me, I was raised to read the Bible in a literal manner, right? Genesis, mm -hmm. you miss all the beautiful poetry in Genesis when you read it as this literal document, whereas if you look at it in the Hebrew. Oh, you begin to see this is poetry, right? And, and there's, uh, you know, there's balance to it. Uh, you know, there's repetition. There's all these things we look for. And um, that's all throughout the Bible, right? Each of these books, some of them are meant to be simply stories. Some are poetry, right? Um, and then, you know, you talk about things how, you know, with Samson and Delilah, how it relates to the, the sky and such like that. And we, we miss all that because we didn't live mm -hmm. then. We don't get all these context clues that... You know, if you would have heard the story back then, because you probably wouldn't have been reading it yourself, you've been listening to it. Right. You know, you would you would hear these things and oh, I see what's going on there. But us reading it, you know, here two thousand years later, we read it and our literal Western brains, you know, get completely something different out of it. So, I completely agree that I want to know what Paul meant when he wrote it. I want to understand exactly. Paul. I don't care what it means to me. What did it mean to Paul? What did it mean to the people back then? And, you know. Like you said, people aren't using it. It's not in a museum. We aren't looking at it on a museum wall like we're a, you know, a Monet. It's being influenced. It's exerting influence in people's lives. And you know, folks who come from conservative backgrounds know the kind of effect that can have on a person. Um, and that's something that I wanted to talk to you about too was um, were you raised in like the Reformed, uh, you know, the Calvinist movement? Did you adopt that? And how did you, how did you come to it? And then how did you kind of – wiggle your way out oh wow big question so yeah i yeah. i was raised by a mother giving you context my mom was a pentecostal from florida they were snake handling pentecostals that's okay how redneck uh from my mom's side they were and i mean legit holy ghost dancing screaming yelling cast not demons the whole nine right my dad was roman yeah. catholic and uh oh my people goodness. Be like, how did they how did they like hook up and i'm like have you ever heard of a thing called alcohol uh you know <laughs> so they were at a party and met and then here comes me right uh, mom's mom's tried to bribe me throughout the years she didn't continue in those churches that was where she was raised but she was trying to take me to these like local baptist churches and she would say hey i'll take you to this little buffet called golden corral 
all you can eat if you just go with me to church. I'd go. Oh I'd go to sleep on her lap in the, you know, in the actual area where the adults are. I didn't really like to go to the kids' area. Sometimes I did. Sometimes I didn't. But I just go to sleep. I didn't really like. Maybe subconsciously, I'm hearing things and picking up stuff. But I never really got into the whole thing. It was only in middle school when I actually was going to a church, uh, church type private school that was right down the road in sixth grade, where I remember distinctly having an experience. And the experience was an altar call type situation where, have you ever told a lie? The guy was really good with words. He was using a lot of pathos. The emotions were there. And he made me go, did you lie about this? Well, you had to lie about that lie. So you've, you've, you've said a lot of lies. You know, and he started to get yeah. you and you're like, and he's like, but don't worry. Jesus died for those sins. And, you know, God is a holy God. Just a slight mistake is a stain that deserves eternal punishment. You know, he didn't go into the whole fire, fire stuff. I'm a young kid. But I went down and I asked Jesus into my heart. So that was when I remember feeling a warm and fuzzy experience inside and about my how gut. old were you? Sixth grade. So Sixth grade. Okay. Okay, sure. Yeah, I don't know how old that I was. Yeah, I think you're 12. 12, 13, yeah. 11, yeah. 12, yeah. So... I remember, though, having a distinct experience and telling everyone else, and I was so happy, and I was trying to be a good good Christian. But time goes by. I find a friend who helped me one day. I got injured, and he went to this local fire station, and he's like, hey, uh, he helped me out with some ice because I got injured on the team. And he said, hey, would you like to come hang out sometime? Well, we went to this house church. Woman pastor, King James onlyest, spoken tongues, uh, laid on of hands, cast out demons, like the whole shenanigans that you would see on TV preacher type stuff. But they were like really doing this. And I ended up just skipping a little time, speaking in tongues. I would go in there. How about I got a I mean, like, dude, I literally did it. I could still mimic the way I would do it. And I remember how I started to do it. All of that and years go by when I have these, like, I'm, I'm a kid. I'm going through hormones. So now girls are, like, catching my attention and bonfires with beer and, like, fun stuff. And I'm, like, trying to wrestle with the world and my Christianity. Cutting some time off of this, I want to get serious as I'm trying to get right with God. And, and my life's been a struggle. My father's an alcoholic. So, like, I have already addiction issues all, like, it's already instilled in me potentially genetically but also sociologically like it's in my environment my whole life so i'm trying to get right with jesus but i also feel like something's not right with this house this house church thing and i've read scriptures where women are supposed to remain silent like what is she doing preaching and teaching from the from the pulpit and i would test out the kjv onlyism and i found that to be faulty but you know line upon line precept upon precept so i'm giving you a detailed analysis to point out i started going to a calvary chapel at Calvary Chapel, the pastor was giving a sermon one day, and he made a mistake. He butchered when Jesus says, tear down this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. So then all of a sudden, he says, and the uh, he's speaking without looking at a book, and then the, uh, the Pharisee says, we built this temple in 40 years. Then I knew right away. I was like, no, it's 46. I remember this. Like, I've been studying so much that I know he made a mistake. But I went up to him after church, and I said, how do I how do I learn what you know? Like, how do I become uh, what you are? I want to become a pastor. He said, why don't you go to the local church, Carolina Bible College. It's not local church, lo local college. Went there, and I studied, and I got two years under my belt there. 
in that process became a Calvinist. Why? I started looking at the Bible, like actually looking at text within the best I could of my bubble. And I saw Paul in Romans chapter nine. And I don't know, I don't know how you can get around this, but before they were even born, Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated they haven't even done anything right or wrong. Paul goes to say it's according to God's foreknowledge and election. Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated. And then he goes on and said, this is the reason I brought up Pharaoh to show my power and my might. Well, we know what happened to Pharaoh. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. He literally caused Pharaoh, according to Paul, to not turn to God. So he goes on to say, what if God willing to create vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of glory prepared for glory? And he's just being patient to destroy the vessels of wrath. I was so Bible-believing Christian, I don't care what the Bible, if the Bible said it, I was trying to believe it. So I ended up becoming a Calvinist. This led me down so many paths. Um, I'm having arguments with my professors at this college. My views are changing so much that I'm worried and I'm struggling with my own personal not a, being addicted to painkillers in life. Like I was going up and down and I'm thinking to myself, if I become a pastor and then I find out what I've been thinking is true because I've been wrong so many times, what do I do? Like, I don't want to be a pastor and I'm have a whole flock and I have to go, I'm sorry, I don't believe that this is true anymore. And all of you should also probably consider that this isn't true anymore. And you should come over to the, you know what I mean? Like, no. Yeah. So I was on a journey. And, uh, if you want, we could start to talk about what happened after that, but yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I do. I want to touch on a couple of things you said there, just, uh, uh, as some points of solidarity. So you talked about your mom and dad. You said your mom was Pentecostal and your dad was Catholic, right? Mm -hmm. My mom was Catholic and my dad was Southern Baptist bouncing up and down the, <laughs> the aisle way crying. And, and yeah, people always say, how did they get together? And it's so funny because they came together and basically became non-denominational, like Baptist basically. So that's, wow. that's super funny that you mentioned that. Um, Cause I was like, yeah, I can, I can totally, totally attest to that. Um, and then your conversion experience, you talk about being 12 and the yeah. person you specifically said being very good with words reminded me so much of my conversion. I was, I think just about the exact same age, 11, 12, and the, there was a revival going on and the revivalist preacher was a beautiful storyteller and I, I love stories and he was fantastic and that got me going. I remember shaking, physically shaking and going forward and like going to the altar and such. So, uh, you know, we said about pathos. Oh my goodness. He did a countdown. He had his hands up. You had like 10 seconds to come forward before like the time was up, you know? So, so many, uh, there's a couple similarities yeah. there that you said and just immediately reminded me of, uh, you know, kind of my own story there. But, um, so you said you get into college and you get to Romans nine. Uh, when I got to school, one of my first friends was a Calvinist. And when I got to him and started talking to him more, and I, I knew about it. I had talked about predestination and things, but yeah. getting to school and really going, you know, tit for tat with somebody is a bit of a different experience. And in my mind, after a very short period of time, you know, coming across that, I thought, if this is the way this is, you know, I, 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 I can't, I don't think I can 
believe this. Like, this can't be the way God is. Like, is you know, to me, there was so much authoritarianism. What you said about hardening Paul, you know, Pharaoh's heart, you know, you know, Jacob and Esau, all that. Yes, I feel, you know, and I wasn't that way. You know, I, I, I was like, you know, well, I was like, that's not true. You know, I'm an Armenian. I'm, you know, that's not, that's not all true. And so, uh, you know, it, the rest of it unraveled eventually. But, um, yeah, very, very, very similar takes so far. I actually wasn't, <laughs> I didn't know this. I didn't know your, 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 I knew bits and bobs, but not, not the rest of it. So you get to college then, you're in school, going back and forth with your professors. I also would, would do some of that. <laughs> um, what starts, what's like the first chink in the armor? What's the first thing that starts making your head? If I can, if I can back up just a minute to say yeah. that I actually am with you on this. I was Arminian as well in the sense that i wasn't a arminian like i knew what i was i was a free will guy libertarian free will i believed we had choice that was my excuse for the garden you know like i had all of that stuff worked out to make god divorced from evil and there were passages that i started to see and i was like okay there's a problem of evil we either act like god is not competent or powerful enough to handle this or he's actively involved in it or he just can't stop it right so like i couldn't imagine a god that wasn't capable as though evil wasn't part of his purpose so like when calvinists would engage with me and i've had like engagements with him for months i was such an emotional kind of christian in the sense that like i was sensitive god had to be love it had to be soft and gentle like when you imagine a spirit i would listen to um a lot of this music you know that would have this uh uh, real, real emotion to it. You know, I, I could even uh, mimic some of them, but uh, they're worship songs. That's how you kind of feel God, right? God can't be other than that. I've been listening to this kind of music for years. That That's how God feels. That's what God should be is what I'm feeling about God. So when I started to face the reality of some of these texts, Psalms 5.5, the Lord or God, Yahweh, abhors workers of iniquity. Well, I thought he hated the sin and loved the sinner. It says he hates the workers of iniquity, not just the sin. He hates the people who sin. You know, and I thought Calvinists kept preaching. It isn't the sin that gets thrown into hell. It's the person. And they're like, and I'm like, oh, you're starting to swallow this big pill. You don't want to swallow about God, but you're like, it's the Bible. So I have to. And I made this statement one time. That if the Bible said that Jonah swallowed the well, okay, I'm not kidding. This sounds ridiculous. And one guy go, dude, something's wrong with you in the comment section when I said this. But I was trying to point out, I really recorded myself saying this one time. I believe the word of God so much that if the Bible said Jonah swallowed a well, I'd believe it. Now, how would that be anatomy? Like, how could your anatomy even physiologically swallow a giant fish or a well, right? That would seem completely fictitious. Well, so is a man inside the belly of a well in the depths of the ocean for three days and three nights. So anything's possible when you live in the land of make-believe. That's what was in my head. So I find out the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. For what? This wasn't accord- Was this not according to his plan? Calvinism in that sense caught my attention. But I started wondering, this God seems really, really... There's certain things I can't swallow, even though I'm trying to say to others I'm swallowing. I'm a Calvinist. You're five, you're a four pointer. I'm a five pointer. Limited atonements on my on my plate, you know. And 
the one biggest problem I couldn't quite swallow as I would engage was there's probably people in my family that I love, like I really love, and my God doesn't. You know, I couldn't imagine that I loved things God, like I couldn't imagine I loved people that God didn't love. And who were they? I don't know. But it made me really start to like wonder at some point. It was just on the back of my mind. And my professor, one of my professors at my college, became my pastor because I joined the Presbyterian PCA church. Not getting into infant baptism and, 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 and you know, like there's so many different things I did over the years going through this. But I went there for two years or so. I was a member. My wife and I were both. And I was a pre-mill dispensationalist still. So then we're like, listen, we, we, need, to, we need to tweak that uh, eschatology of yours a little bit. Here's a book. So he gave me this book, A Case for Amillennialism. I can't remember the girl's name who wrote it, but I read that book. I became an amillennialist. Technically, what that simply means is that you're not so literal that you, you can't interpret things allegorical. I said this yesterday on my live. God is the God of a cattle on a thousand hills. And I thought, what if there's a thousand and one hills? Well, he, he's the God of that hill too, of course. The point is, it's just a large number. It's an allegory to say everything. God is the God of all things. So I became an amillennialist, but I didn't really become an amillennialist for because I knew all eschatology. I found Kenneth Gentry, Gary Damar, and R.C. Sproul and their partial preterism, post-millennialism, more convincing. I'm sorry to your audience members who are watching this who aren't tracking what I'm saying, all these big words. You know what I'm saying? I'm yeah, sorry. no, they're, they're, they're going to have to get used to it because these are, the, these are the type of weeds I love to be in. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's difficult, but long story short, partial preterism is teaching that there are a lot of things in the Bible, in the New Testament, that already happened. Just to put it simple, like Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, it's all synoptically the same narrative. And it's about the destruction of Jerusalem where Jesus is saying, here's the signs of the end of the age or end of the world. And it's all leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. These guys right. fall short from being full preterist. This is where I ended up in heresy. This is where it happened for me. I studied this and I'd hear these partial prets every once in a while mention this name full preterism or hyper preterism, they called it. Stay away from that. I'm like, the heck is that yeah i'm staying away from that i'm sticking with my guys you just go with the people that you trust one day i heard this man on youtube named don k preston say jesus did return in this in 70 ad and i said this guy's on drugs jesus already came back nah because the world didn't end that was my immediate rationale so he says well what you think you understand about the world ending you're mistaken so I would click the next video, click the next video, click the next video. I start watching and realizing, okay, this actually lines up with the Bible far more than what these guys are saying. Like, Jesus wasn't expecting thousands of years. Paul wasn't expecting thousands of years. This had to happen soon. So I came down pretty firm and was able to biblically defend from studying this stuff that it had to happen then. Therefore, it did. But how we understand it is the big question mark. So I went to other members in the church and I'd have Bible study and they couldn't like, you know, you're, you're going back and forth and they I'm like, so how do you answer this? What is he saying? And like, they couldn't give a good answer and they were like, be coming convinced. 
So I got called into the church one day. There were five members at the church the council, if you will, that sat me down like I was in court and told me, just listen, don't speak. And I listened. And they were correcting me and trying to reprove me and rebuking me and telling me that this is a heresy and you need to stop. You're going down the wrong path. Stop and back off. The church has not ever come to this kind of conclusion. You need to stick with the magisterium, so to speak, and the text they claim is on their side. And I felt like none of you guys could answer what I'm trying to ask you biblically. So then my wife and I felt very odd on the few next Sundays we went to church. And I just little by little stopped going. Well, my wife received an excommunication, a legal document excommunication letter in the mail. And I got one about a year after that. And um, I did a testimony at a preterist church in New York when I went up to do speak, uh, speaking engagement. And uh, the pastor saw it and said, that's a lie. You, you were never excommunicated for full preterism. So he wanted to get me on the knickknack that I never was excommunicated for full preterism. But it was for absence. And I said, well, why do you think I was absent? You know, like I didn't just stop coming to church because I was like, you know what? I don't like the clothing they wear on Sunday. No, like I, I didn't go because you guys made me not feel like I was welcomed. And I thought you guys are actually the ones not believing what the Bible's saying. So I became my own pope in a way. But I also struggled with addiction again. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I struggled with addiction again. And this goes on and on. But I'd love to pause there to allow you to do whatever you want to do and take us wherever because we could pick back up on, like, what happened to me. That was – and believe it or not, this is subtle. Like, you asked me, where's the kink in the armor? Yeah. I was still believing completely in the worldview of Christianity. But the doctrine I was already starting to head toward, unbeknownst to me, I did not know this was already leading me out the door and I didn't even realize it. So yeah, so you're getting and you said a few things so far that to me pops up and I start you know seeing the wheels are turning. You said uh got this is quote to, as close to a quote as I could. I couldn't imagine I loved people that God didn't love. And you know, you're starting to your own morality is starting to be weighed against God's and you're saying why is it that I feel bad about some of these things? You know, I know God is sovereign, but why is it that my heart breaks in some of these scenarios and supposedly God doesn't? Like, especially if you're a parent, right? Which I, I know you are. You are. If you know, I'm not this far in the story you are yet, but, you know, why is it I would never put my kids, no matter what they did, in like a burning hell. You know, they could do anything, and I, I wouldn't wish that on them. Why is it that God, you know, I can already see, you know, you're starting to think about some of these, these you know, moral questions. So, so you said you get excommunicated from this church. You're out of there, so now your framework's kind of gone. So what starts to what starts to weasel in to say, you know, maybe maybe it's all not true in the way you think it is. Okay, um, yes, I was a parent then, and I just want okay. to point out one thing about the eschatology thing. I used to have these really guilt trips over myself, saying, "Why am I having?" I just born. Uh, we had a child that I brought into the world at the time before I had learned about Amil, post partial, all that, and full preterism. For all the lingo that people probably aren't going to know what means, they they can Google. Um, <laughs> they can Google. Yeah, uh, what I, I I was at pre mill dispensationalism, and I thought the rapture was going to happen, and I thought to myself, what kind of parent are you that you're going to bring your children into this world so that they can suffer at the end times and maybe be left behind? What if one of their souls? This is how I thought. 
What if one of them doesn't come to believe? And I produced that child with my wife and they didn't come to believe. Like I felt bad, like what if, question mark, over my children's souls. And it scared me. Not only the physical repercussions that would happen in the end that is painted by these horrifying ideas of the end times that Christians teach and believe in church all the time. Don't get left behind. You don't know what's going to happen. Oh, no. Or take the mark of the beast. What is that? I studied that for years. It's barcodes. It's it's the monster drink. You know, it's ridiculous. It's, it's vaccines. Whole, it's vaccines. It's va everything. <laughs> Good point. So yeah, I felt guilt on that. And when I got, when I left this church, I I struggled with addiction for a long time. And what ended up happening is when I would struggle with addiction, I wouldn't get I wouldn't be focused on Jesus. I wouldn't be focused on the Bible. It allowed me to divorce myself from my ideology in a way. I couldn't reconcile the life I was the path I was living doing horrible things for my addiction and wondering how come I have had the Holy Spirit in me. Like I have had the power of God in me and I can't even stay on the straight and narrow. Yeah. Isn't it funny that I'm an atheist today in six years, October the 25th, and I haven't thought about using, I don't want drugs, I'm good, I'm totally complacent. That's just a sneak peek to show you where I'm headed. Yeah. Okay. I have found God. I found myself, and yeah. I found myself in this world and where I belong with other people, but we'll get there. Um, the interesting part that you bring up is I was on YouTube, of all places, Listening to ideas I would never have listened to. And I watched, people are going to laugh. If you, if you please bear with me, you'll understand that I have come a long way. I watched a video called Zeitgeist. Okay. I don't know if people have seen that video. I've seen Zeitgeist. The one about the, the dying and rising gods and the sun, moon, and the stars. Yes, I've seen it. I've okay. seen it. Yeah. Uh, many millions okay. ago, I've seen it. But a couple times. Yeah. Back, back when it came out, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I will say this. Um, at first, I listened to it. I have no clue like about the facts. But they're comparing Jesus to other gods. And they're doing this really good job of making someone who doesn't know anything look at it and go, why do I think this one's true? Like it was enough, even with the misinformation that is in it, to make me yes. realize there's other ways to view this. Yeah, if that makes sense. Yeah, so, it gets you thinking at least about the, you know the astrotheology or the idea that um, you know some of this might have been borrowed. That's the thing it started for me, and I thought, what if this is true? So I found the Zeitgeist debunked video by a Christian, and I started listening to that guy, and he does this two-hour, three-hour video, and I'm listening to him. Now I have something I really need to consider. No magisterium is telling me I'm not glued to the biblical text like I was. I'm in a and I'm in a place where I'm putty. I can be molded in a way, and I, that's why I thank my addiction because it caused me to realize when I thought I had all the answers that I really needed to keep searching, and I started looking into this, finding out more. I found out about D.M. Murdoch. I had a I like um who is Acharya S. For those who don't know, and she's like a she was a brilliant mind who did the astrotheology stuff. It just made me realize there were other interpretations of the Bible I had no clue about. I didn't have the slightest or I didn't know what I was looking at. So she started to explain things. And these are things that I have found out that check out. 
like I've talked to Dr. Price, I've talked to other scholars, I've talked to many Old Testament PhDs, and they're like, yeah, it seems like that could be there. Some of them don't see it. Some of them say, no, it's not there. Like, uh, I'll give you an example. Esau, the hairy man, the wild, the wild man, and Jacob. Jacob was a smooth skin. He stayed in the tent. He was a herdsman. One is a wild animal hunter gatherer type. He's the sun. His hair is red. His brother's the moon, the smooth skin. And we know that if you look at, like, the Sabbath is obviously uh, a Saturday, if you will, resting day prior to the first day. It's the last day of the week. And it is very lunar. They had lunar calendar. They had solar calendar. And there was competing sex later on about this whole idea. But you, you kind of see a sun-moon motif between yeah. brothers. And, and it goes on. Like, there's patterns that you find this stuff. I just realized, I was like, how, how historical is this? And I used to wonder, what if it's completely historical and these patterns happened? God made this matrix of things in such a way, you know, like I was like trying to make <laughs> sense of this stuff. I mean, yeah. I really would try, you know? Yeah. I found, a, I found a few guys who reasoned with me, and we started getting into the depths of this. So please add your comments, and then I'll continue wherever because there's so many things we couldn't touch on if we tried to. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, one of the main things you just said was that you're starting to get to the point, you know, you, the moral things have started to come up, but you're starting to get to the point now where you're thinking, I don't know anything, right? And that takes us all the way back to Socrates, right? The beginning of true education is the realization that I do not know anything, right? That's that's the foundation point. And I, I hit that same wall where, I, you know, you get to school <laughs> and you realize all this abundance of opinion and views that's out there. I saw Zeitgeist and you know, you hear different non-believers or even just more liberal Christians talk about the Bible and you start realizing, oh my goodness, there are so many different ways to interpret this, to read it, to look at it, you know, and from a fundamentalist background, I didn't get, I didn't even get the basic like, yeah. you know, uh, social, economic, uh, you know, political backgrounds that I should have got, you know, and so, uh, yeah, you so your eyes are really being, and the scales are falling off your eyes, right, <laughs> <laughs> the scales yeah. are coming off, so you're starting to see some different different options here. And and when you look at those options and you weigh them out, right, they make so much better sense than what I've been being told. It's it's like uh, that also caused a greater chasm between me and the Christian Church, because then I'm like they are upholding this thing that makes zero sense at this point. You start to divorce yourself. The, mor the morality issue, too, was I couldn't understand how a God could, at this point, I I've realized, like, I was trying to admit God created everything, heaven, hell, and every individual for that destination in the long run. This is all his story. We live in his world, and everything we do is according to his will. And Paul's answering a question in Romans 9 saying, you'll say, but how does he find fault? For who has resisted his will? And next thing you know, he says, he answers, he, I always like to joke and go, he answers, well, first of all, here's how. No, no, no. He doesn't answer your question. Paul does not answer the question. Read Romans 9. He says, who do you think you are? That's Paul's answer. Can the thing made say to its maker, why have you made me thus? Or does not the potter have right over the clay? Like we are nothing but clay. We're just clay. That's it. 
yeah. he can make us however he wants, you know? Yeah, it just doesn't it so minimize I think in my you know, in my view, it so minimizes humanity and it just devalues, I think, human life in, in such a horrible way. Um yeah. and I, I truly do not see a way um to you know, kind of absolve God of the responsibility for all these sorts of, you know, th- this sort of pain. And I-, I thought for a while I could do it with the free will. I thought that gave me, it. and then eventually the longer it went down that I realized there really wasn't much of a difference other than semantically. You know, it was, you know, but, but it's really evident to me in the Reformed, you know, worldview that it's just, the sovereignty is so high. And to me, it's just, what sort of monster is this that, creates all these people so this tiny fraction can eventually decide to love him and then worship him forever and and then the rest are just more or less born uh you know to die and and exist in eternal torment what kind of picture of the universe is this and this is the thing they're raising up us in sunday school to be like this is good news what is good news about that what is good news about that you know maybe for you (laughs) if you're one of the, the elect right but what's What's good about that? I mean, to me, it is just such a pernicious belief. Uh, just I, the God of Calvin. I have a little line here. I thought you'd like. Um, yeah, I'm a large. I'm a big Thomas Jefferson fan. I got him back here. He's on my shelf. Um, nice. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know how familiar you are with Thomas Jefferson. But um, in a letter to John Adams, he wrote, "It would be more pardonable to believe in no God at all." than to blaspheme him by the atrocious attributes of Calvin. I don't know if you've ever come across that. Um, and he also not, said it one, makes sense. He also said at one point, the Presbyterian clergy are loudest, the most intolerant of all sects, the most tyrannical and ambitious, ready at the word of the lawgiver, if such a word could be now obtained, to put the torch to the pile and to rekindle in this virgin hemisphere, being the quote-unquote new world, the flames in which their oracle Calvin consumed the poor Servetus. Uh, yeah. So just a, a few good lines there about, about you know, and I to me, you know, that line about it would be more pardonable to believe in no God at all than to blaspheme him by the atrocious attributes of Calvin. Is that how you feel? You know, is that how now, you came to feel? Yes, that's how I am now, yeah. 100%. I mean, I don't believe that there is a God. And... This whole notion that he brings up with Servetus is a great point because, you know, when you look at the Puritans and how they burned these uh, little girls as witches in the Salem witch trials, the sect of PCA Presbyterian Church I was part of, it is like an offshoot or like a descendant of Puritanism. A lot of the Puritan uh, Reformed writers in time were studied by us as we were reading in our Sunday school and stuff like that. We would go to church early. We'd learn a little history lesson from the pastor from a Puritan so-and-so. And and we would learn about these guys, and they acted like they had the most devotional and respectable ideas and most superstitious people that you can imagine, ready to burn people who don't believe or don't, you know. So it just goes to show you, yeah, I think there's something right with Thomas Thomas Jefferson in his quote there. But also there was like, okay, do you believe the Bible or not? Like, you had to get over that. And I'm bringing it back to that to point out yes, Jesus yes. himself, if you take the words as they are actually Jesus, and that's disputed, by the way, even if the authors wrote it, did Jesus, are they really quoting Jesus? Or are they saying that Jesus said, which means they have an agenda. 
um, in, in one of the Gospels, it might be in a couple, he says, God, Father, I thank you that you have not revealed these things to them, but you have revealed them to babes. Jesus is thanking the Father. This is how a Calvinist would think. Jesus is thanking God that he did not reveal these truths to these other individuals, probably Pharisees and others, who are like, what did he say? What did that mean? Thank you. You didn't show it to them, but you yeah. only revealed it to these babes. So it was like, a Cal this is a Calvinist heaven, right? If they see these texts, the free will libertarian people who think God wants to save everybody, it makes no sense why he's thanking his father that he didn't show it to these guys and only showed it to his select few guys that he wants to show to. I mean, like that to me, all those rationales yeah. start to add up. So you start to see this ugly God more and more. Now, whether there's free will ideas in the Bible, that's a whole different question. I mean, like I'm not even closed off to it. I, th I don't think it's one philosophy. I don't think it's one idea. I think there's a ton of ideas that have found their way into these texts from various backgrounds. But I can't read Paul and think this guy is not thinking similar to the Qumran uh, uh, they have a philosophy of like predetermination type apocalypticism and it, it goes right into the Dead Sea Scroll type ideas these guys had a god that created light and darkness good and evil I create all the all these things Isaiah 54 or 45 something 45 7 I think it is like this is the god of Calvinism and this was the god I was trying to rationalize I found my way out of that I still believed in something though so I was going to 12-step groups because I was an addict trying to get clean. And I was like, I have a higher power, but it's, it's not that Calvinistic one. So I, I, I started to like realize, okay, they painted Jesus looking like other gods in this zeitgeist thing. I really don't even know if this is true anymore. Um, I'm, I'm needing a higher power to save my life because I'm an addict. And I kept that for many years. And then I relapsed again. And here I am on heroin. This takes me to like the lowest part of my life where I was injecting heroin. First, I was snorting it. Then you didn't have enough that day and you don't have enough money to get what you need to get your fix without being sick. So now you're trying other methods and shooting up was a quicker, better way to keep me from being sick. And I'm scared of needles. So there's a whole nother story into this. Yeah. But I, I, I went deep, as deep as you can go, almost to death. And I thought I was going to die. And then... That, that's where I was like, what if I'm wrong about everything? I did say a prayer, and I was like, I can't do this. I'm going to die. I don't know how to live. I don't even know how to control my life. I don't know how to live. So I cried out. But then as I started to get clean, I started realizing more and more as time went by, you know those footprints in the sand? You know, Jesus is carrying you? That was me. I was walking in the sand. And I was just talking to myself. The whole time it was me just talking to me. You know, and, and it was the people around me who helped keep me clean. Not yeah. this metaphysical mind or idea of a higher power. God was bigger and I realized there were patterns throughout all religions. So I was like, okay, there's all these religions in the world that have similarities. And I thought to myself, it's like the six wise men of Hindustan. Have you ever read that poem? The elephant, you mean, right? Yes. Yes, 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 I, I, I did. I, I do know the poem, yeah. Yeah, yeah I loved that poem. It is. It's a, it's, a, it's a brilliant analogy. It really is. If why nobody's... Yeah, why don't you walk us through it since the listeners may not know. Okay, simply put, I can actually bring, if you want, it doesn't take much to actually read if you're okay with that. 
if you would if like. you're okay with it. I mean, yeah. it's not long. Um, it's it's about six blind men who actually go to see an elephant, and they're all blind, and ultimately they all walk away with their own interpretation. But I really think reading it is going to be better for everybody to actually grasp it, right? Yeah, if you want to pull it up, I think it's a great analogy for those who didn't study comparative religion and don't know the story. <laughs> it was six men of Hindustan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy the mind. The first approached the elephant, and happening to fall, against his broad and sturdy side at once began to bawl. Bless me, it seems the elephant is very like a wall. The second felt of his tusk, cried, Ho, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me tis mighty clear, this wonder of an elephant is very like a spear. The third approached the animal, and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, then boldly up and spake. I see, quote he, the elephant is very like a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quote he. Tis mighty clear, the elephant is very like a tree. The fifth, who chanced to touch the ear, said e'en the blindest man, can tell what this resembles most, deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is very like a fan. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quote he, the elephant is very like a rope. And so these men of Hindustan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong. Christians, Jews, you name it, like everyone is, ah, this is my opinion about the elephant, God. Okay? Exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, and all were in the wrong. So often theologic wars, the disputants I ween, rel on in utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prate about an elephant not one of them has seen. Now, the, that yeah. right there is my favorite little poem. I love that poem. It speaks volumes. God yeah, became the elephant of all religions in my mind. But it, he, she, I was willing to say at this time, because it was always a he, patriarchal. Right, um, had to be. <laughs> it, yeah. It lost its potency. Because when you have an exclusive only way, it, it really has a lot more power on people. When it becomes ah, energy, it becomes the yin and yang or whatever. You don't, it doesn't really have that like, why are you watching pornography? Why did you right. look at that woman with lust in your heart? You know, like, whoa, dude. It, it, personal peering into your private life in every moment you, you think, what if? What if I just sinned? What if I'm not going to heaven? Father, do you really love me? Like, whoa, that was my mindset all the time. Yeah, it's almost like the, you hear it referred to as the uh, the Orwellian thought crime. Uh, that's what it's almost like, you know, that, and really in that case, it's, you know, it is thought crime because it's, if you have lusted after a woman in your heart, you are guilty of adultery. I mean, we're walking a, you know, that's a dangerous road. You want to make that, you want to put that into law? No, right? It's, you know what I mean? Because that's, that's not going to play well for everybody's going to be in prison. <laughs> you know, it's not, yeah. not sustainable. But um, that's just another feature of, you know, to me, I just can't get away from that tyrannical interpretation. Like, to me, it just, it's, just, it's, it's just tyranny. That's, that's all, I, all I see uh, when I look at you, know, especially uh, the reformed view of God. It's just so oh, tyrannical. It gets, 
But it's so, even if you're not reformed and you look at the image of God in the Old Testament, I've done this recently. Like, it's a tit-for-tat type thing where God is like, as long as you obey my commandments, you will not get punished. Uh, but if you don't obey my commandments, you're my chosen people. You're my children, right? You're supposed to be my children. I'm supposed to be your father. Right. And every time you turn around, not only are they getting their, you know, what's handed to them, but there are parts where he's talking about, I'm going to have your women raped. I'm going to have, you, you, like, we're talking stuff that God is saying through the prophets to the people, if you count that yes. as God actually speaking. Yeah. And it is not good. I'm going to make you a pile of dung. I'm going to make you eat your own feces. You're going to eat the flesh of your own womb, right? This is like clear. We know 70 AD, for example, that's what happened within the Jerusalem destruction. Jews who were starving to death within the temple had to go so far as eating their own infants. This is history. So we're like, they're all funneling that through an interpretation of the prophets and their Old Testament. They think this is God punishing them. It's ridiculous, yeah. but but yeah. yeah. And, and if you were, I mean, if they, if you were familiar with the Old Testament as as they would have been, uh, it wouldn't have been a giant leap to think that that was you know the proper interpretation. I was just talking with another individual uh, recently and uh, relayed to them some of the you know more interesting verses of the Old Testament. I, I think the specific one I had was um, Moses telling them to kill every living thing, but keep for yourself the young women who have not known a man. Do, do we need to... He doesn't need to elaborate further. I don't think we need to either, right? Right. These are the sort of commands that are coming uh, with divine, you know, divine warrant. You know, people say that, you know, what's the famous line that they think is in Russian literature, but whether you can actually find in there. It's, uh, you know, with God, without God, all things are permissible. You know, I think it might be the other way around. With God, all things are also permissible. <laughs> I, you know, I, yeah. I think if, you know if you're going to use divine warrant, you can warrant anything. Um, yeah. Yeah. So let's go back then a little bit to you are, you know, you're getting clean. Do you feel like, um, and this is what I'm picking up from you. You seemed like for a while there, you were really relying and correct me if I'm wrong, but this supernatural power, like you were appealing to it to help you get clean. Was there the shift where you begin to then start thinking in terms of personal responsibility? Like, I'm responsible for getting myself clean. It's just me. It's just my footprints in the sand. Did that really click and then help you? Was that one of the things that kind of got you, you know, to where you are now? Uh, at first, like I said, I was praying, right? And I yeah. was like thinking something's there. And as I started to get clean and learn more about science and I started to look at the natural world, I think what started to make me realize is that, okay, this is not a moral issue. I've been hearing this for a while within 12-step groups, which I appreciate that about it. They do want to make it a point that it's like, dude, you're not a horrible – like, yes, we do bad things, but you're not a hu you're not a horrible person because you have this problem. There's a medical condition behind this. Now, whether one wants to interpret it as a disease in the way that they think of a disease or in the way that medical doctors would try to describe what this means and how they would want to diagnose this – uh, it's a little different if you look at the actual science books. But I wanted to look at my brain. I wanted to know what was wrong with me. I knew it wasn't – like I knew it wasn't uh, a spiritual issue by this time because I had seen some of the most spiritual men also struggle with addiction. And I'm like, okay, hold on. What is going on here? You know. And I'd listen to these disputes between Christians and, and 
it would be trying to talk about what the soul is and how it requires the physical in order for the soul to manifest. So like if a person has brain damage, the soul can't operate. So technically you don't see the soul that's there. Really, they're trying to create an unfalsifiable way of saying there's a soul instead yes. of just saying the brain is all you need, that the brain is there. Well, I started digging into this stuff like addiction. How does it habit? What are habits? And what is going on in my frontal lobal cortex? And what do they mean by connecting it to the midbrain and understanding how to heal that process where my, my uh, I'm not giving these, like there, there's a electrical, if you will, it's misfiring. My decision-making process is all jacked up. How do I heal that? And how do I train myself to not do this anymore? The God thing stopped working. It just, the, the whole religious thing. So having this abstract idea at first is all I had. There was something up there maybe looking out for me. And I thought the world was lining up. I had been through so much trauma towards the end of my heroin addiction that I did not know reality. I was coming back like I was a newborn child. I didn't know. So I needed to figure it out. More I studied and learned about the brain and the anatomy and also really considering evolution made me just have to face the reality of saying, okay, we come from the same family as these animals. I'm very much like an animal, okay? How do I treat this? How do I fix this? How do I become a better person in this community not thinking these magical thoughts are gonna really solve my problems? People put their hands on me and pray acting like it's gonna cast out the demon of addiction or that there's something like that happening. As I did that, that's what I think started to make me look into the world in reality. And now I'm knowing these stories are myths that are borrowing from other stories. I've been learning this stuff for a while, and I just started Myth Vision. Just yeah. started it. But at the beginning, if you go back to my channel, you'll see it, bro. You'll see it. I really thought there's something there. Like I believed in something. The leap happened when I realized, all right, God is this idea almost like a deist or a pantheist at this point where I'm like, it's something, it's everything, it's there, it is what it is, right? To the question in my head became, how do I know that? Like, like what's the difference between there's no God and there's a God, and he created everything and it has nothing to do with anything and he's just not, he's absent. Right. Or a God that is so abstract and is everything that we can't really tell it's there, it just is. What's the difference? And I said, there's really no difference. At this point, if you said, well, I'm a deist. Well, technically, God was there, but he doesn't exist anymore because he doesn't give a crap, right? Uh, I realized maybe there is no God. And I started to listen to arguments on that, considering, like, maybe there isn't a God. And Graham, uh, Graham Oppie, other philosophers who are big into the, into the atheistic world, and then Christopher Hitchens, who I hated – I hated him, bro. No, I'm not gonna kid. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be really? the Bush, bro. Listen, I hated Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens. I actually hated these men. The way that Christopher Hitchens would talk to the Christians he was debating, I could not stand how he spoke. I'm not even exaggerating, bro. Yeah, yeah. Now I love every drop of juice that comes out of him, man. I mean, it's just like. Oh, wish man. he was still here. I wish I'd met him in person before he was oh, gone. Yes. You know what I'm saying? Like he, yes. he's a Messiah figure in in a way. You know, like oh, this my, guy's a yeah. beast. Yes. Yeah. I uh so I don't know if you 
checked out my page at all before coming on, uh, but I have a lot of Hitch stuff on there, and Hitch has had a few, huge influence on me. Um, I have right here, and I'll put it up. It was in, I, th- I referenced this in the last podcast, but I'll, I'll put it up on screen again, and I'll, I'll show you afterwards. I have up on the wall over here, um, over a, a handful of whiskeys, um, I have a mosaic of, of Hitch, and he is uh, it's made up of excerpts of the Quran and the King James Bible, and they are uh, splayed around him <laughs> as a halo. And he's holding the bottle of, of Johnny Walker Black, the, the glass of Johnny Walker Black in his hand. Um, yeah, so Hitch had a huge influence on me. And when I first heard him speaking with the flippancy and the, you know, oftentimes derogatory nature, to me, I didn't quite have the same. I was probably a little more open. I was getting more open at that time. It was the flippancy with which he spoke of it that made me really go, someone really doesn't lose sleep at night. This man does not lose sleep at night thinking he's going to hell. Like, I could tell he meant it when he said, yeah. this is, you know, this is baloney. There's absolutely no reason to believe this. And to me, that struck me with such force, uh, him more so than the others, where I just felt compelled to read his literature and listen to him because he just seemed, not like he was so sure of himself, but just that it was the way he treated it that, that kind of came across that... um yeah, so did you just kind of – now when you kind of – did you go back like you saw him once and then a few years later you kind of circled back around to him? Well, I didn't see him once. I've, I've, I've been engaged with apologetics for a long time. Sure. I, I was studying under uh, – one of the guys who was my, if you will, counselor, teacher was under Norman Geisler. And Norman okay. Geisler was like co-working with Ravi Zacharias and stuff. So I was in the vein of apologist in terms of that and – I was a big fan of William Lane Craig. I bought like all the Kalam Cosmological, his private lectures. I have like over a thousand dollars that I've spent. If I go over here and grab this box and bring it over here, I could like pull out classical CDs with Ravi Zacharias, William Lane Craig, the whole shenanigan. And I've seen him debate uh, Chris, you know, let me just put it this way. Hitchens, he's debated almost any of the guys that were worth anything in terms of the Christian community of argumentation. And he was the one guy, I mean, of all of them, that was the most vitriol in his speech. And it would upset me so bad because he would just – like, that's wrong. Like he'd start with, for a couple hundred thousand years we humans have been here. We've died of every type of disease. You know, he says things yes. so flippant like you said. Yes. And then he talks about, oh, and God just decides to show up at the end of the day. And like, and I'm thinking, no, we've been around for only 7,000 years. You know, at one point I'm a <laughs> young earth creationist and I'm like, yeah, this too. guy doesn't even know what he's talking about. Um, then when I deconverted, it was that process that I needed time. Uh, I'm afraid if I'd have hit Hitchens and really believed what Hitchens said out the gate, I don't know. I'd have felt like death. Um, deconversion is a form of death. It's a mourning type of thing. You're letting go of something that is like a life. Completely agree. And, um, I, I had to deconvert, and I did it in a calm, gentle way over time, becoming kind of more like abstract God to what's the difference. And then I listened, hey, let me revisit this guy because I've been wrong about everything before, and now maybe I've been wrong about him. And I listened to him, and man, if I could pick his brain right now, oh there's so much stuff that he would be able to tell me and say, and we could have a whole episode. I mean it would cost money to get him on. He, he would – you know, serious money. I'd run but you a, a small fortune. <laughs> a, a small fortune, but it would be almost worth it. You yes. know, like he's that good. 
Yeah, yeah. One of my guests that I have lined up um, met him and shared a bottle of wine with him one night. And wow. I, I, yeah, he was telling me about it. Uh, shout out to John, who I, I know will watch this. And uh, I was just drowning in envy. Let me tell you. I mean, you know, <laughs> if you were to look at me, I was, you know, I was green. Yeah, obviously, you know, I, I'm very happy for him. But uh, yeah, Hitch, Hitch has had a huge influence on me. This right up here, for those who are mm -hmm. listening, I'm pointing to the bookshelf behind me. That's all. That's all Hitch. Um, I even have. Wow. I'll show you this. The little, the hitch candle. <laughs> yeah, he's got the cigarette and he's holding, nice. you know, again, another little halo figure. Obviously, all of this, the halos and everything, it's all tongue in cheek. I'm sure he'd yeah, be yeah. horrified, but he loved a good joke. So I think he'd laugh, man. Oh, yeah. I think he'd laugh. He'd be like, you idiot. I love you. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Great he, sense of he, humor. Is, he really is. Um, I think that the biggest takedown that really, like, caught my attention. Well, there was a couple, him and Frank Turek, and then there was the one with the Catholic Church. That one, I mean, him and Fry literally yes. fried the, the Catholic Church in yes. that debate. It was, it was something to watch. And even at the end, having the people who realized, okay, you know what? This is what they just said was good. This was good. Yeah. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, his debates are, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's great. He's just as pleasurable on paper. As he is, you know, in video, is to be able to write and speak equally well. That's I feel like that's such a rare, a rare gift. You know, some people are fantastic writers, and they're speaking, and then some people are great speakers, and it's you know they can't translate it to the page. Um, right. But Hitch really was gifted. Yeah, gifted with both. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Absolutely. I, that's well. That leads me to kind of where I'm at right now, in a way. Uh, I've been doing Myth Vision for now three and a half years or so, and and uh, like, I'm at a point now where I am a naturalist. Uh, I think that there is no God. Um, I have no reason to believe there is one. That doesn't make me technically a uh, metaphysical atheist, as though I know that there's not something out there. Uh, be kind of uh, ridiculous with all the pride and the conclusions I've taken in the past, acting like I know everything, but. I think that everything's leaning in that direction. As I continue to keep researching, it seems like even all the natural explanations. For example, I just did an interview with Robert Price, and I thought this was amazing. He brought up, he said one of these people he was studying, I don't know, either talking to them or whatever, they were out there with chimpanzees in the jungle, probably in somewhere in South Africa or something. Uh, storm clouds started to form, and a lightning bolt struck, right? I'm like, all it's saying is a storm was coming. When the lightning bolt struck nearby, the monkey looked up at the sky with his fist and went and gave a fist to the heavens, okay, to the sky. And that right there, that triggered something in, in the researchers' minds realizing they think that something caused the lightning and it's something in the clouds so they're assuming agency in this storm that we can naturally explain and know that there's no agency to it and he's given a fist going you mother you know like and this is a monkey pissed off at the sky <laughs> so if a monkey's doing this i had to go what if the natural world what if what if nature it's just inherent in animism and polytheism 
that we're now assuming agency in things that isn't there because there's plenty of agency around. Yeah. So you look at all this agency, and it's not a leap to add agency to something that doesn't have it. And this is the develop. This told me there is your seed, your little sprouting seed that turned into the tree of religion, of why God. It, it, it's all explained within the natural um, explanations we can look into. Yeah. Yeah, I uh, yeah. You talk about agency, you know, it goes back. I would also qualify myself in the same way as you, just a naturalist, and you know, I call myself an atheist. Um, but there's, I think there's a, you know, atheism versus. I mean, you're just getting into meanings and semantics, but yeah. uh, a deist. I think there is a difference there, though. You know, you said yeah. you, there could be. I don't know. I'm just a peon. You know what I mean? You know, I'm, I don't hold these things with closed fists like I used to. You know. Well, like uh, Graham Oppie said this, just to point out, because he's a philosopher, and he said metaphysical atheism says you know. It's almost like saying a Gnostic atheist, someone who knows that there's no God. Yeah. Okay, you can't know that there's not something, right? Exactly. Uh, that you would want to say that maybe caused the universe or whatever, if that's – which we don't have evidence of any of that. So it's like making that assumption. But at the same time, he goes, I live like I'm a Gnostic atheist. So he's like – I don't live my life assuming there's a God. I don't act like there's a God. That's not how I live my life. So I live my life like a metaphysical atheist. But if you were to ask me in a debate or you try to pin me down, he said I'd be like this close to being a Gnostic atheist. But yeah. I'm like an atheist, you know? Yeah, it's like the Dawkins in the God Delusion has that scale of like between a 1 to a 10, 10 knowing there's not. And he's like a 9, 5 or whatever he defied. But what you <laughs> said about agency, you know, that just – you know, when you're the monkey, eventually, you know, you go along and it's the god of the gaps, right? You know, you're, it's, oh, he created everything. Well, then we have evolution. Okay, well, he made the beginning of the universe, right? And then you go all the way up to, you know, the cosmological argument, like you brought up the Kalam argument and oh, William Leg Craig. Yeah, I know. We, don't, we won't go down that road, <laughs> um, though we could. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I can I completely agree. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a heck of a, heck of a journey. It's a heck of, and, yeah. to, and to have addiction and all that too is just I mean that's a, a whole other topic but you know what a what a story man I, I'm uh, it's it's uh, it's crazy but I'm glad you are where you are I mean you seem like it's uh, you seem you happy with it for sure I am I mean the whole addiction thing one of the projects that they do to test it is on animals animals are also addicted to these drugs when you give it to them now environment plays a huge role but the point is like. Okay, I thought I was made in the image of God and animals weren't. This played a huge role as well in my deconversion because now I realize animals suffer from the same things we do. And when I realized I'm very close to the animal kingdom, I – like how did that answer when I realized we evolved, that we come from other species and we aren't what we, we – we are what we are now, but we weren't always this. Yeah. That really started to blow my mind. So guys like Christopher Hitchens – all of these guys, Richard Dawkins blew me away. I used to hate, like, there's this clip where this Christian guy who's, sir, and he's so sincere, and he's like an emotional Christian. He's like, what would you say to a man who has experienced the Lord? And what, you remember that one? And he's I've like, I it. would say that you're sincerely delusional and you're hallucinating, sir. <laughs> but it's like, I used to hate that Richard said that. Now I'm like, Richard, you're on to something, man. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I, uh,. <laughs> I know some people they jab at the the new atheism for the vitriol and the supposed anger and such, but 
I, you know, first of all, I don't think there's anything new about the new atheists. If there's, well, if there is anything new, it's the fact that a few people stood up, you know, around the turn of the 21st century or shortly thereafter, and said, "Enough." You know, this is we're putting our foot down, and we we aren't going to shut up. We're not going to shut up on TV. We're not going to shut up in the public venue. You all aren't shutting up. Why should we continue to shut up? You know, and that movement was started by Madeline, you know, Madeline Murray O'Hare. I might get that name wrong. Who founded American Atheists and all that? You know, there's nothing new about it other than the fact that we want to we want the same respect as everyone else as everyone else gets. Um, but uh, yeah, I had a similar experience. You know, where you're first you're just very leery, but then eventually, you know, the personalities and the the, the wittiness gets you. It gets you in the end. You know, you you yeah. those good responses. So, well, that's great. Um, let's see. Well, let's switch gears here just a little bit. Um, okay. We kind of got the story there, and that was fantastic. Um, but one of the things I wanted to chat with you about was uh, Jesus mythicism. So yeah. I feel like that was such a big – it's been such a big part of your channel and the conversations and people just – you know I think that's such a you – know, I, I don't know. I've not looked at your metrics, but I imagine those videos probably do pretty well um, comparatively um, speaking. But uh, last I, I heard from you, you had kind of landed on the uh, historicity side. So yeah. um, for those who don't know, what is this whole debate about Jesus mythicism and why is Derek where he is on it? Ah, right? Exhale. This is a big <laughs> topic, brother. Oh, yeah, we could do five hours just on this alone, but the, really the, the, nut, the nutshell, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'll do my best. Um, this is – so when I started to realize maybe I'm wrong and comparative religion became a part of realizing Christianity and all these other religions have a lot in common, not only that, Judaism, the Hebrew Bible, if you will, you know, the Septuagint, the Hebrew Bible, yes. borrowed from other religions. Mesopotamian flood stories with the Epic of Gilgamesh is clearly intertextuality going on between Noah, the Genesis narrative, and the flood myths of the Mesopotamians, especially Gilgamesh. And then that flood myth, you come to find out, actually was borrowed from an older story. So where you have Marduk in one as the god, you have another god of a previous idea where he has this feather bird that they're fighting. So Marduk is fighting the Tiamat dragon type beast, and and um, she pretty much from her carcass he creates the world. There's a the older myth that it borrows from. Well, the Bible's just late in the game. Johnny come lately borrowing. Same thing with like um, Sargon, the birth of Moses is being put in a basket and such. There's there is this uh, intertextuality and this idea that Sargon's birth and Moses plays a significant role. Apologists will love to downplay everything I'm saying. And I'm telling you, across the board, critical scholars who do not have faith as a risk, they do not have something to lose uh, personally for their own narrative, they're looking at this going, yeah, this is a problem here. They're definitely using it. Or not that it's a problem. They, they don't even have a problem with it. The, yeah. the thing is, it's a problem for these guys who want to make this golden bow wrapped around their religion as if it's perfect. And nobody fits all. Da, da, da. Get out of here. Yes. So you see this and you find these motifs throughout the Bible, even with uh, Job and his suffering. Here's Yahweh. And then there's Leviathan. And he's saying, can you play with it like a bird? Can you catch Leviathan? All these things. Well, Leviathan is that Tiamat figure. It is that dragon, that chaos, that chaos back to Genesis 1 when it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form or void. 
darkness was upon the face of the deep. Well, that is chaos. And God speaks. Doesn't even have to fight like the older Mesopotamian myths where they're fighting against uh, this right. this chaos dragon. God just says, let there be light. <laughs> like he destroys the chaos dragon, or at least he at the moment he puts it to the side. He doesn't destroy it. That's what Revelation's harping on, by the way. Harping on at the end that the dragon, that great old dragon, that beast, that it will be finally, you know, cast down. And it's still going to be imprisoned, but the idea is one day it'll be no more, right? Completely gone, all chaos. Well, I say all of that to say I got to Jesus and I said, is this what's going on here? And I listened to Acharya S., who said that Jesus didn't exist, that he was a sun god. She was arguing he was a sun god. And this is where a lot of rubber hits the road where scholarship says no, they think she's wrong on a lot of stuff. And there's some things that she's right about. And Robert M. Price, I've got the book. Um, it's up here somewhere. I've got the book. But Acharya S. has a, a book up here specifically where she you know, is talking about this whole thing, where Jesus is just a myth. And the idea comes down to mythicists are people who believe not only is there no historical Jesus, but the the whole narrative itself is either created whole cloth fictional, like a lot of uh, Acharya S type people will say, it's all an astrotheology narrative. There was a pastor who wrote a book called The Devil's Pulpit in the 1700s, I think, 16, 1700s, and it's all astrotheology. He, he literally thinks even Jesus is a sun figure surrounded by 12, which is the Zodiac. You have the 12 months of the year, right, and it's right. all fiction. But then you have the mythicist like Richard Carrier and Dr. Price. Dr. Price mixes some of the astrotheology in. Richard Carrier says no to astrotheology, but he believes that Paul had a heavenly figure like Gabriel or like Michael the archangel, and he had a savior messiah figure as an angel that was giving him personal revelation and that somehow this this figure which was up there with god decides it's going to go down through the layers of heaven there's seven layers he sneaks through the different layers of heaven and gets down to the area of paradise which is the garden of eden where the garden of eden happened and he ends up being crucified by the archons but they don't know that he is this messiah figure and the archons of the age, the principalities and powers are demons or demonic powers that are in the third heaven. They crucify him there. I'm giving everyone a nutshell here. Yeah. They crucify him there. He was born there. He was, uh, according to the narrative of Paul, he was born there. He was crucified there. He was buried there, and he resurrects there. Something like this, to this effect. And then ascends back on high. And, and Paul's preaching this resurrection that he believes that Peter and all these people listed in 1 Corinthians 15 that have had the vision and have seen the risen Lord, that they're also having this connection between this angel figure, this Michael archangel figure, kind of, that's named Joshua or Jesus, Yeshua, okay? Right. They're, they're having this, uh, relate, this revelation, and the Gospels come after this, and they write this story that tells you of a history they, they, they take it and they put it on earth. And what the mythicists say is this is called euhemerization. So they euhemerize Jesus into this guy who was born by a woman on earth. He lived a life. He was rejected by the Jews, by his own people. They're borrowing Old Testament narratives to try and create the fiction. And at the end of the day, he ascends on high. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
John makes it the most divine. Right. This is the mythicist idea in a nutshell. I believed that. I went from Jesus is God to Jesus is a complete myth. And I did so without actually maybe considering all of the historians and all of the arguments that come from the historian side that say, no, we don't believe Jesus. We don't believe he did miracles. We don't believe he's God. We don't believe any of that. We think the Gospels are mostly fiction. We agree on a lot of stuff. But no, I think you guys are throwing the baby out with the bathwater, and I think that your position's ad hoc. Yeah, yeah. You have so, the whole, like, uh, you know, the famous quote that C.S. Lewis had. He was either liar, lord, or lunatic, right? But you miss one, which is <laughs> legend. We can even use the yeah. same letter, right? It's that, well, maybe he existed, but, oh, right. things are being told about him that, you know— <laughs> perhaps didn't actually happen is that such a crazy idea um so where have you ended now are you still on the historicity side of things you're thinking yeah, yes i think there's probably a guy um i don't do it because i can go oh well here i found a, a leg bone here you go here's your leg bone of jesus now you know he existed um i'm looking at this stuff and if if mythicism the way that it's characterized by carrier is right according to what i'm seeing right now I wish there was more information in the text that we have to give us that. To me, it's a, it's a bit of a stretch to think that Jesus died in heaven, was born in heaven or manufactured up here in heaven. He lived a life in heaven. He gets crucified in heaven. He gets buried in heaven, and then he resurrects in heaven. The reason why someone might say is that's because you know the Gospels, and they're right. They are right. I have the Gospels, which are highly legendary and highly fictional in many ways, but they're more of like a historical fiction to me. Yeah. They do paint people, places, and things, and they also give you fiction. They give you narrative. But in my mind, I think, well, look at Josephus. Look at Philo. These are two Jews sandwiched between when some of these Gospels come on the scene and Paul, and they tell that Jews were really being crucified by the Romans. So how... How ad hoc is it to assume Jews are actually being crucified in real history by real Romans on the real ground here for religious purposes potentially, but definitely because they had rebellions and such, or they disagreed, or there are criminals that maybe been trying to fight against the state, whatever the reasoning may be. The Gospels say that the Jews did not like Jesus, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, etc. So if I could glean a nugget here and, and say, this guy who's preaching his own little message, these Jews aren't liking it. They don't like what he's saying, so they want him killed. And I'm, I'm hypothesizing. This right. is hypothesis. Sure. And so they go to this guy who would have been glad to kill a Jew named Pontius Pilate. And what do they do? They make Pontius Pilate look good when he's not a good guy. We know this from literature. Correct. And they have him killed. And this is also why Paul, I think, is saying that there's a stumbling block in Romans, uh, Romans chapter 7, where he's talking about the Israel. There's a hardening on Israel. They've rejected the Christ. Well, this may be in the same vein of why the Jews are to blame, according to them. Now, I'm not actually blaming them. I'm making the point yes. as to why we find that in the text. It becomes anti-Semitism in John. But there's blaming of the Jews. And notice the Romans are clean hands, not guilty at all. It's only in Revelation that you can glean that Rome's in trouble. That's yeah. that's the biggest thing. Rome is the one that's the problem. So I think there was a guy who was preaching an apocalyptic message, and it was in a vein that some of these Jews were not happy with. 
So they had him killed. They had Pontius Pilate. They had these people take him, kill him. Could be that the, they, the Jews stoned him. I don't know. But this guy dies, and their friends, these disciples, they end up having an experience post-mortem, post, uh, probably a bereavement, hallucination of some sort, something. And when people die, you don't eat. You probably fast. All right? You're in your, like, praying mode. You probably aren't sleeping worth a crap, especially if they're looking for you too. So your life is in danger as well, potentially. You've got multiple reasons here to say, did these guys hallucinate because they're wishful thinking, wishing their Messiah wasn't dead? I think there's something to that. And if you take Mark as one that doesn't even have a resurrection appearance of Jesus, it cuts off at, at Mark chapter 16, verse 8. Yes. 9 through 20 is added. So then Matthew embellishes that and still doesn't have a physical, literal body of Jesus resurrected. They appear to him on, on the mountain in Galilee. Then Luke comes on and says, no, go to Jerusalem. Contradiction, by the way. One says go to Galilee. The other one's Jerusalem. Correct. And they're saying, touch my body. And in John, he's like, Thomas, come touch me. Look, Phil, put your finger in the wound. Check my hand. You know, like it's all physical. That development, I think, takes place to try and, like, sell the story. Yeah. And I, I can go on and on, but I personally find historicism, for me, to make a little more sense out of all the data. It's just, it's not crazy that people exist. No. And they become <laughs> mythologized, you know? Yeah, yeah. I I tend to lean that way as well. I, I just think the whole idea is quite interesting. Um, and I, did, I have read carriers i just finished it earlier this year um jesus from outer space i haven't read the large uh you know <laughs> monograph that is you know the his the, his larger volumes history of jesus or whatever that's you know the massive massive work but um yeah it was very interesting and i have i have it you know margins notes in the margins and such and maybe i'll have a chance eventually to chat with him and uh ask him some of my more pertinent questions but uh i think it's a really interesting topic so i wanted to hear you know your thoughts on it and and get a little bit out there because a lot of people don't know that it's you know it's a thing or if they've heard about it it was back when it was like joseph atwill and some of the you know guys that you know it wasn't yeah. you know the carrier i think carrier and you know dr bob have started to you know give it a, a better face you know give it a more approachable um uh you know other than just the romans made him up right you know something like that i right. think it's become more scholarly more serious and even carrier says in his book is it what's the odds? Is it one in three he gives? One in five? One in? It's something like that. The odds he yeah, gives. Yeah, thirty three percent chance that Jesus yeah, existed. One in three. Yeah, I thought it was. Yeah. So even he's you know, he's not a you know he's not dogmatic about this, right? It's, yeah. I mean, he's he's very open with it, but he makes a very interesting case, and yeah. I definitely think people need to take the time to read Paul, and you know they always read the Gospels first, and then they get to Paul, and they just assume this knowledge. But if you read Paul, it's actually very interesting what he knows versus what the gospel writers seem to know um so it's all yeah all super interesting i think it's just a difference between how much do you allow the gospels to speak yeah because if you if you think there's more history in the gospels than than uh what carrier does you might start to think there might have been a guy at the start of this thing it's very technical so you can't be dogmatic and i'm not dogmatic back either because at the end of the day the gospels do come after paul we don't really know when they were written. We think Mark was written in the late 70s, at least, maybe early 80s. I'm saying 70s because I personally think this, especially in light of the fact that 
uh, he is right after the war assuming the end is about to happen. And he's using the temple as the example of these are the signs to tell you the end is right around the corner. Yeah. So I think he's right in this. And then Luke and Mark, uh, Matthew are using Mark. Yeah. And they're using this whole temple thing still. Then uh, it, it finally gets out to where you get to John. But there's an apocalyptic problem. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the yeah. problem, too. It gets into the failure that Jesus didn't come back, even though he predicted that this was going to all happen, according to the Gospels. So Yes. You get further theology, you know, further theological development. Uh, you know, that beautiful opening, you know, verses one through whatever, whatever it is, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was flesh, right? You know, yeah. it's the, <laughs> it gets, starts to get very, very interesting when you get to John. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, let's see here. I also, I, one more thing I wanted to chat about here um, before we wrap things up is you recently begun having on um, people like Zarakay or the apostate prophet. You started diving into Islam a little bit. And so my background, I, you know, my studying comparative religion, to me, it's primarily I'm interested in Christianity for obvious reasons. You know, you, you're born in it, you're bred in it, you're, you know, you're there. Um, but primarily I have stuck with the monotheisms, with, you know, Judaism and with Islam. And so um, I've, you know, started to dive into some of that as well over the past few years. And I'm, I was familiar with Zara when you brought her on the show. And, uh, and so uh, what has made, what made you sit down and say, I want to, I want to get into this. I want to start bringing this into the myth vision conversation. Well, for a long time, I've said, I wanted to look into the myths of other religions. I've said this about Buddhism when Dr. Price will bring this up. And I, I don't know if you knew this, but there's a place where Siddhartha Buddha actually walked on water in their narratives. And this is way before Jesus. Like you don't have another figure in the old Testament that walks on water. You have people who travel through you know, uh, the Red Sea being split, supposedly, but you don't have walking on water, but you do with the Buddha. And the literature for that is far older than Christianity. So someone has mentioned, not just Bob, because people go, Dr. Price is crazy. He goes, his ideas go all over the place. Yeah, he's an encyclopedia. But there are scholars who are not like that. Even Del C. Allison Jr., who's a Christian New Testament scholar, he's not a like your typical Christian. He's highly uh, critical, and he's a scholar scholar. He said, yeah, you know, the trade routes, they could have easily passed these stories on and they could have picked up this Eastern narrative of Buddha walking on water and said, you know, someone could have incorporated the walking on water with with uh, Jesus. But then is also the interesting idea that Yahweh uh, hovers on the waters in the Psalms. Yeah. So is Jesus a, a Yahweh figure in the New Testament hovering on the waters? And then there's the idea. You see where I'm going with this. Dennis McDonald talks about um, the uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and in Odysseus, with his men traveling on the ship, they're praying to the gods because a storm has come to calm the sea. Well, if you look in the Gospels, you know that sea. What is the sea that Jesus is is sailing on? Galilee. Do, yeah, it wasn't a sea though. No, it was a lake. So why is it called a sea? What makes you wonder, maybe they're harping off the narrative, making a story. Jews were not seafaring people, okay? Th th this was not their thing. Hebrews weren't seafaring people. This was a Greek idea, Phoenician idea. These were things that the Philistines probably practiced. People within that type of area would have done it, but it wasn't a thing that Israelites cared to do. They were more herders and nomads. They weren't into that. So this story 
finds its way into the Gospels and makes a lake turn into a sea. All of that to get to Islam. I want to, not only do I want to deal with it because many people have commented on my videos, Muslims, when they come into some of my chats, before I ever had Zara K on, even though they won't believe me, uh, and they make these truth claims. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Christians uh, debacled it with their whole trinity, and the Jews made mistakes, and their God's just ugly. Yahweh's the true God. Or not Yahweh, sorry. Uh, Allah is the true God. And they would, like, make these truth claims about how true this is. Keep up the good work, Derek. Keep jabbing at Christianity. We're happy that you're doing this. And I made a lot of friends, I guess, on their side from doing this because I was a Christian. I'm like you. Like, what am I going to talk about? The thing that I know the most. Right. That's it. So people are like, why do you always got to talk about Christianity, man? Maybe because I was a Christian and that was my thing and I know so much about it. So this is why I talk about that. But Judaism is like the foundation. So I looked into the Old Testament more, really poking into the myths of that. Now it's Islam's turn. And one thing I've been doing for a long time, two things. Here's the problem I've ran into. Let me just put it this way. They go, why don't you have PhDs on like you've been doing with Christianity, Derek? Well, I'm working on it, so be patient, number one, right? Absolutely. But number two, it's not that easy to get them on with Islam. They're not going to be as critical as they are. Christianity is kind of allowed criticism to some degree. Even though they don't like it, they, they will engage with it, and it seems more permittable. I hope Islam becomes more permittable where Muslim scholars, and I say Muslim scholars and Islamic scholars who aren't Muslims, aren't afraid for their life to come on and lay down the gavel and say, I'm sorry, the verdict's in. This is definitely not true, but let's tell you how the story happens and let's show you the errors in the manuscript tradition, which isn't the same as Christianity or with the text of the New Testament and the Hebrew Bible. It's a little complex. It's not the same as most of these scholars I'm already engaging with or discussing. I want to get into that. I also want to get into the borrowings from the Quran. I want to see, did the Quran use other sources? What is the story about the two-horned man? And there's a certain name for him. Is this Alexander the Great? Is this talking about Cyrus the Great? Who is this figure within the Quran? And if it is Alexander the Great, it acts like he worshipped Allah and he's a monotheist. We know Alexander the Great wasn't that. He was a he had all gods. Like he was like, I'm coming over there, I'm cool with your god. He wanted all the gods on his side, so he worshipped them all. Yeah. Like if that's the case. So I'm gonna look into this stuff, but one thing I do is I interview ex Christian, Scientologist, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormon, like I I interview ex anyone. And the quickest, most accessible people I had on anything when it came to Islam were ex-Muslims. I'm an atheist. I don't, they keep forgetting that when they comment these things like, <laughs> like you're supposed to only invite Muslims on to tell what Muslim, Islam is. And that's what they honestly expect. So I say to them in the comment section when they engage with me and harass sometimes, I say to them, name an ex-Muslim that I can interview that you're okay with. They can't name an ex-Muslim that they're actually given the green light to and when they give me a scholar, usually it's a Muslim. And if it's not a Muslim, he's such a sympathizer that I can't really get anything out of him that would probably actually poke holes for probably fear. Or maybe he's just like, I'm not willing to go there yeah. so that he takes a different position. I don't know. Yeah, well, it seems there seems to be, especially with Islam, you know, 
this hesitancy to be critical, um, especially among you know people who tend to be farther left on the political spectrum. Um, you know, they can't seem to separate the fact that they can't seem to separate skin color from ideas, which is a, a whole another problem, uh, right? Islam yeah. is followed by people of all colors. Uh, so to criticize Islam is not to be, you know, to be racist first and foremost. Um, but it is, there's, there's this hesitancy to want to dive into it. Um, but I also think that folks like you and I, people who were in and were in very seriously, we have a unique perspective and we see some of the harm that folks who were never in and just picked it up as, you know, as an interest don't see. They just, you know, and they may, they may get it eventually through interactions with other people or conversations. But, you know, I think when you've lived it, it's different. Mm. And you take a slightly more critical stance often uh, in the way you talk about certain things or the way you interact with them. Um, so I can imagine that the ex-Muslims, uh, you know, the things they're going to say are going to be more critical than if you just get some third party who you know ran into this in grad school and, and now does research on it or whatnot you know there's right. this element to it but i as an ex-christian appreciate that and truly i think that is where you get so much good rich information about what is actually going on you know because these people have lived it and I, yes it's anecdotal mm -hmm. but it's still lived experience and they're combining that with the knowledge that they have on the topic um, so I just wanted to applaud you for that because it is um, a lot of people aren't doing it. And there are organizations like ex-Muslims of North America and folks like Zara K and Apostate Prophet, um, you know, and, and even more, you know, the list goes on. It's becoming more and more and more popular. Um, I, I keep uh, I follow the ex-Muslim tab on Reddit and it just grows and yeah. grows and grows, you know. So I think that's a, a wonderful thing that you've started. I'm, I'm so happy to see uh, I also think that you're future. right. I mean, it needs to be dealt with, too. Yeah. Uh, people have tiptoed. I've heard nothing but from the ex-Muslims I've been talking to so far. They say, I don't know what it is. I think it's how people are treated when they are critical of Islam, why a lot of atheists in the West are shy. I can tell you this. Hitchin wasn't wasn't shy. Hitchens mm. would tell you what it was. Correct. And he was pretty blunt. He, he, he was blunt on everything. Circumcision, you name it. Uh, but bottom line is is i feel like it's only fair if i'm going to deal with monotheism i'm going to deal with monotheism and johnny come lately islam needs to be dealt with and i honestly believe it's crazy to me how a system 700 years ad can like use two broken systems all right according to their worldviews the way that they understand the text and act like their understanding and their God is actually correct. Like, oh, no, no, no. It, but they're still using the stories. They're still using characters from these religions. And they're like, no, 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 no that's good. But th they got that part wrong. And, and uh, they still use the infancy gospels of Jesus, which never found their way in any canonical stuff. And any scholar I ask that knows the, they're experts on the infancy gospels, they're like, anyone who reads this can tell that this is kind of satire. Like, the, the authors do not mean this like they're not like serious here in the sense that this is like go and make this a dogma and later on they use this as dogma this is part of their sacred directly from the mouth of Allah that's orating the you know giving in the mouth of uh, Muhammad so you're like he's using these infancy narratives 
and it's a joke when you look at the embassy narratives this is not meant to be taken literally actually true and yeah. this joke is used seriously in the quran it's like whoa what the heck is going on you know yeah it's uh what is the to quote hitchens again the literal mind does not understand the ironic mind it's something very mm. close to that the literal mind just can't fathom irony when you read everything literally your whole life is in read literally and you don't have exposure to ironic literature or just irony as a concept you know hitch so adored irony it was one of his fundamental values if you will uh and it's just so true you know they you could just imagine that first person coming across that and just adding it to the you know to the rest of the dogma it's incredible yeah, I definitely agree with Hitchens on that. That's so true. And I don't know Jack Diddley squat ultimately about it. In fact, I'm going through and I'm need I'm trying to find what are the more um acceptable translations cuz one of the biggest I call it BS radars that come off in my head is and I'm speaking about the religion, not the factual understanding. Like if you really want to get to the bottom of something, I do recommend understanding the language. I'm never going to learn probably Arabic. I don't, I'm not going to say never, but odds are I'm probably never going to actually learn that language, okay? Which means I'm going to be relying on scholars who understand it to come away with understandings and comparing them with other scholars. Historically and antiquity, also currently, whether they're from Harvard or if they're an Islamic scholar that's somewhat respected. I want to know why they're beating around the bush. Why aren't they saying that he beat her instead of saying he touched her or something like this? You know, I want to know why you use touch instead of beat right. or something like this. And they've, I've heard these things, but it goes deeper. The argument religiously that they'll make is you don't know uh, Arabic. And I love what the ex-Muslims have been saying that I have on the show. They go, but this is a religion for all people. And it's really small that the all-powerful, almighty Allah cannot transmit this message into all languages. And it has to be in Arabic. I just think it's fascinating that you have to know Arabic. You got to meet God halfway yeah. to understand his <laughs> message. You know, he can't make it clear uh, for everybody in every language. And um, this is the apologist shtick, if you will against people like me and others who might want to engage and poke critically at this thing. Yeah, and you get that with, you know, the Christian side too, but not nearly as bad. You know, this, oh, you can't read Greek? Uh, you don't you don't read Greek? Oh, then you can't speak to any of this. I'm like, all the Greek scholarship has been done. The vast majority of it all that has, it's been done. If you want to study it, you know, you want to study, I did a word study on Gehenna, on hell in, in college. Yeah. You know, it's, the scholarship's there. You can find all the places it appears in the other literature. You can do the work. I took two years of Greek as was doing basic translations and such and one of my realizations before why I didn't continue on advanced I did what was required for the degree um, was that you know you would have to get so into it to where it almost becomes a second <laughs> language till you start to get these ideas but even then you don't live at the time so you can't pick up on like you're never going to understand it in the way you know, you would understand, like, if you moved to a country and started speaking Spanish, and then you start to get the jokes and the subtleties and the illusions and all the little yeah. the little things. This is a dead language we're talking about, and if you can go and pull up the word and you can see every extant example of the word in antiquity, you know, it's there. It's there and accessible, so don't come at me with the Greek, but the Arabic is different. That is the inspired language. Right. You know, that is not a tenet of the Christian faith. It's different with Arabic, and that is... They, you know, I can imagine that they, you've been getting some uh, wagging in your face about, oh, you can't even read Arabic and you're talking about Islam. 
Yeah, I get that a lot, and, and, and yeah. I do want to clarify: Greek's not a dead language, but but Koine. the Koine, yes, well, Koine, the Koine you're discussing, and Koine has a vast. Uh, it's it's a whole. My friend was explaining to me that there, when you say Koine, like people just think that's simple. It's like a common Greek, but it, there's a lot that encompasses that, and and modern Greek is not like biblical Greek. Like that's Correct. what you're trying to say. So if you're a modern speaker and reader, you're probably not going to pick up the Bible and understand at all what's going on, especially culturally. Like, yes. And there are Jewish people that are reading and interpreting this into their language. So there's there's big-time curtains we're not able to peek behind. The whole idea that it has to be in Arabic, I get it. That's why I'm trying to get scholars like I had Shadi Nasir. He's from Harvard University. He knows the Arabic. He's read this stuff. And at the end of the day... No, it has not been preserved. The Quran has not been preserved perfectly is the point he's trying to make. He also thinks that it has been preserved quite well. But guess what? One would say the same thing about the New Testament. Correct. If you want to say, has it been preserved? No, we don't have original autographs. We don't have this, that. Same thing with the Quran. We don't have original autographs. This is that. Um, but ha since they have come up with what they have as the text, it has good preservation just like the New Testament, just like what we think the Hebrew Bible has as well. Because we look at when we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found the Masoretic text we know is from the ninth century, and it's got a lot in common with a lot of things. There are lots of differences. I won't go into those. Yeah, I know. I don't want to get in trouble. But right. the point is, you know what I mean? You get where I'm coming from. And fundamentalism is the problem at the end of the day. And when your religion is that, uh, I think that Muslims are more just inherently more fundamentalist in the terms of the way they view the text and believe they told me the only Quran that the uh, the only miracle that was performed is that the Quran exists or something like that a couple of them has said to me and I'm thinking to myself what's the miracle well kids can memorize the whole thing and it's the mo it's the best written book nobody can write a better book I asked that of Shadi Nasir and he was like okay do you like Led Zeppelin you know like he's giving me an example like what is your subjective like? And then get a group of people who agree with you, and then now you tell other people, no, 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 this book's better. But you might read it and say, no, I don't, I don't think that book's better. I don't think this is as good as you think it is. It doesn't matter. They keep on saying the same thing, and that's their narrative. It is a miracle. The Quran is a miracle. And um, I definitely don't think that, you know, so I'm poking holes. I'm here to poke holes in it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, fundamentalism being the enemy uh you know that's a good point to, to to close on and is a good underlying statement of everything we've kind of talked about right you know fundamentalism dogma seems to be the, the you know just about the least advantageous way to live your life and to think um and i you know hope to be a part of the process as i know you do of you know routing some of the remaining fundamentalism or at least shaking you know the tree a bit and, and allowing people to see some of these other things and there's people who are doing great work um Fasil Al-Mutar who runs Ideas Beyond Borders they're shuttling in literature you know that's you know enlightenment literature or uh, stuff from like Steven Pinker and you know giving this you know mm. taking it over there making it available online they're translating all sorts of of um you know literature into arabic to allow people to read it all this work you know it's a it's amazing work and um it's going to help i think so many people um who don't you know if you only have this lens to look at in the world like i did as a child and you know as you did at one point 
you can't get out of it. You don't have like a framework to move. And it's only because I had the internet and access to public libraries that allowed me to get out of it. So making content like this, and then, you know, people like, like I just referenced them, uh, translating to Arabic, all this work is work that's going to get it out in front of people and allow them an alternative route so that they themselves can make the own choice about how they want to live their life and how they want to think about their religion and religion in general. I 100% agree. I think fundament, like you said, fundamentalism, it is my story. Yeah. This is why I'm after fundamentalism. Drug addiction is my story. This is why I help drug addicts. I have a YouTube channel with 24, 25,000 subscribers, not Mythvision, a whole nother one. Yeah, I've seen where it. I just help, yeah, I just help yeah. drug addicts. Okay, I'm doing the opposite. You know, I, I, I'm trying to help in the very vein of my, my weakness has become a strength. So I help the people who are struggling with addiction because I struggle with addiction. I'm trying to help fundamentalist and, and here's the thing i'm going to give you an analogy using the addiction instead of the religion for one second can you i can't tell you how many drug addicts that have wanted help from me when i go to talk to them while they're addicted to drugs um they literally become vitriolic they are uh, cuss me out they're angry they're mad they don't want to do it whatever you know what screw you blah, blah blah they're fighting me against what's really what's good for them it's the same thing with religion i honestly believe and I've been looking into the brain, trying to study this stuff. There is a connection between drug addiction and religion and what it does with serotonin, endorphins. I mean, you name it. Like, it's the same chemical compounds in the brain that are being tapped into. And one might go, yeah, but one, you're ingesting drugs, and the other, you're not. Have you ever heard of gambling? They're not ingesting any drugs, and they're addicted to gambling. What's going on in the brain that's making them addicted and they can't stop gambling their entire life savings away? Yeah. I'll tell you why. The drugs are in your brain. Those chemicals, that, that, that sweet feeling that you get. The same thing happens when you open your phone to check your social media yep. in a little way. Okay, So there's a lot there. And I say religion. Religion really taps into that and the five senses. You know, se uh, smell, taste, uh, sight, touch you know, a hearing, they, you know, all of that. You've got noise in church with music. You go into a, a Catholic church, you smell frankincense, you see the sight of a cathedral, um, the touch, the feeling of putting on your hands on one another. There's this community and we evolved with these five senses. They were impactful for our survival. All they've done has been hijacked in these communal situations we call religion and are now utilized in a, in a uh, methodological way that has become normal and it's really poisoning the mind. Yeah, it's it's a it's an addiction. Yeah, I I absolutely think there's definitely you know there's got to be correlations between the two, and um, you know that cognitive dissonance that comes along. You mentioned that earlier. It is extremely painful. I mean, I was I was a mess for a while there when I was destroying that whole worldview and. I mean, you lose your sense of who you are, your person. It is, like you said earlier, it's like a resurrection, a dying and reviving of who you are. It's a complete mm. change of, you know, your worldview and your sense of self. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I definitely think there's there's correlation between between the two for sure. It's. Um, I'll end on this if I could say. Yeah. Andy Thompson is a Ph.D. He did a speech at uh, Richard Dawkins Foundation a while ago on why we believe in gods. He wrote a book called that, Why We Believe in Gods. He goes to point out in East Southern Africa that tribes that we know about 
they had the women sit in the middle and men would dance in a trance and sing while circling around the women. This is what they did ritually, okay? They would do this to impress the women and they would do their little dance, all right, African tribes. And they would do it around the women, smiling at the girls and do these dances and it would release these chemicals. They, they found out this is a way to also relieve pain. So a pain relief is through this. I mean, all of that, not even needing to ingest chemical compounds, even though that is stuff we've learned along the way. That is the first time you start to realize why the kids, or like myself, would go in church, and when they're worshiping, they close their eyes, they're sticking their hands up in the sky. And what are they doing? They're doing this right here. They're saying, in a way, kind of a subconscious way of saying, pick me up, daddy. Pick me up. Okay? There's a father figure idea. This all boils down to natural explanations. And when you realize that, you realize that all of these religions are doing is taking infantile things that we naturally have, we've evolved with, and they've really hijacked them. I have an episode on my channel where Andy Thompson takes you through a PowerPoint presentation, and a lot of companies have learned this. McDonald's, with their advertisement and the things they put in their food. I mean, we're talking a lot of stuff here. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. there's a lot more to the picture, I think, that people – should just you should start investigating everyone you should really consider what riley's been saying too and do this i mean this is this is a fantastic show i really appreciate you interviewing you're really good at this i, I just hope more people wake up and start to realize the world is a beautiful place you don't need to worry about an afterworld. you need to worry about the one now you need to love that person that is nearest to you really hug them when you leave you know this show or you're you're right near them grab them and hug them and appreciate them right now you know absolutely and just try to make it a better place absolutely well that's great that's a great way to close um where can everybody find you on social media we've already said the name a few times but what's your yeah. what's your uh what's your main place so just go to my youtube channel myth vision podcast and in any video i have go down in the description i've got my instagram i have my twitter i have a facebook group i have a facebook page um, I've got emails. If you personally want to reach out and email me, you're more than welcome to do so. Um, you know, there's a way to financially support me if you're interested in doing that. I have a Patreon where I have hundreds of videos that have never been released. Uh, probably three to four hundred videos have not made it onto YouTube of content that is fire. Hopefully, one day it makes it out there. But uh, you could support me, and that's only like three bucks a month if you want to join. So you can join for one month, watch as much as you want, and then quit if you want. I'm just saying, though, if you want to support what I'm doing, though, you ask questions, too. And I, next time I visit scholars, I will interview the scholar asking your question, and it will be on film. So people have an opportunity, a little grandma or grandpa at home who doesn't know even how to contact you know, these big names out there. I'm your I'm your middleman. You know, I'm your middleman to the dope dealer, okay? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. Love what you're doing. Everybody everybody check out Derek's stuff. I uh you know, he's been a big inspiration for me in this channel and has I mean just been a source of much enjoyment uh over the course of the past couple years that I've been following you. So uh thank you so much for coming on. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thanks.